0: Good morning. My name is Jim Beckman. The Old uh, the Testament scripture uh, reading comes from today, from the Old Testament, I should say, Book of Daniel, as Jeff was just talking about. And I'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. During the third year, third year of King Jehoahem's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoam and Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Alphanses, the chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with the knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language of literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food uh, and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel... Hananiah, Hananiah Mishael, and Azariah were the four young men chosen from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Remember, there's a Veggie Tale song about that uh, we were talking about this morning. Um, But Daniel was determined to not defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, "'I am afraid, my lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine,' I'm sorry, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths of your age, I am afraid the king will have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Ezra. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. At the end of these 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier, better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided the others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, John.
1: Well, we are in the middle of a series called So Far From Home, and for many of us living in this country, it can feel like a different country than the one that we grew up in. Uh, Christianity has less and less space in the public square, and we're feeling like the church is being pushed more and more to the margins of our culture, and so for many of us, it can feel like we're living in a country that's no longer our home, and the Bible calls this exile, meaning living in a place that's not your home. And so, what does it mean for us as exiles, as Christians, who are living in a place that no longer feels like our home? How do we live faithfully as exiles in this culture that's increasingly hostile to us? And last week, last week we looked at the exiles who lived in Babylon, these Jews who had been forced out of their homeland of Judah, who lived in the exile of this foreign nation of Babylon, and in the same way, we as Americans are living in exile, and we need to figure out how we can live faithfully as exiles. And this week, we begin to focus on practically, what does that look like? How can we live faithfully as exiles in Babylon? And last week, we came up with this idea of blazisting, and that's what my shirt is about. Credit to Jeff Johnson, who made this shirt for me this week and gifted it to me. Um, But as exiles, we live faithfully by doing this dance of blessing the host culture, but at the same time, we resist the host culture. It's a back and forth of blessing and resisting as we forge our way faithfully as exiles in a land that's not our home. We blizzist our host culture. We blessed it and we resist. On February 17th, 1919, Desmond Thomas Doss was born in Lynchburg, Virginia, to William Thomas and Bertha Edward Doss. William was a carpenter, and Bertha worked for the shoe company. Doss was a quiet, skinny boy who, after completing one year of high school, went to work for a lumber company. Desmond was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, and he became a deacon at his church when he was 21. In March of 1941, Desmond began working at the Naval Yard, and after the United States entered World War II, he was given a deferment. Instead, Doss chose to join the Army in 1942. Commenting on why he joined up instead of taking his deferment, Doss said, I felt like it was an honor to serve my country according to the dictates of my conscience. On August 17, 1942, Desmond married Dorothy Pauline Shute of Richmond, Virginia, before going on active duty. Because his faith forbade him to bear arms, Doss enlisted as a combat medic with the hopes of saving lives as opposed to taking them. Desmond preferred to call himself a conscientious cooperator rather than a conscientious objector. Doss explained the interplay between his faith and his enlistment by saying, while I believe in the commandment thou shalt not kill and that bearing arms is a sin against God, my belief in freedom is as great as that of anyone else, and I had to help those boys who were fighting for it. Doss became a medic in the 307th Infantry Regiment, 77th Infantry Division. Almost immediately, Doss became the target of harassment for his beliefs. Doss observed Sabbath on Saturday and refused to eat meat. Because of this, his fellow soldiers thought Doss was a pest. They didn't think someone who refused to carry a weapon should be in the army. They viewed him as the weakest link in the brotherhood and would throw shoes at him while he prayed. That all came to an abrupt end in 1944 when Doss was awarded the Bronze Star. Doss's division fought the Japanese in the Pacific Theater, and they were fighting to liberate Guam. Doss was recognized for his meritorious service, but that was only the beginning of Doss's heroism. In 1945, Doss's company wound up in Okinawa facing a frightening task. The soldiers had to climb a steep, jagged cliff with thousands of Japanese soldiers on the plateau at the top. And this cliff was often called Hacksaw Ridge. The Japanese called this cliff the rain of steel. Because of the constant fire, they would rain down on any troops attempting to take the cliff. It was in this rain of steel that Das crawled from wounded soldier to wounded soldier, administering aid. He even improvised an evacuation of some of the wounded by dragging them to the edge of the cliff, tying a rope around their bodies, and lowering them to safety at the bottom. The whole time he was rescuing, Doss kept praying, Lord, please help me get one more. Over the course of 12 hours, Doss Doss rescued approximately 75 men, including his captain, Jack Glover. Afterward, the commanding officer wanted to credit Doss with saving 100 wounded, but Doss estimated the number at 50, so they compromised at 75. On October 12, 1945, Doss was promoted to corporal and received the Medal of Honor for his bravery. Doss became the first conscientious objector to receive this highest of military honors. His medal reads, Doss refused to seek cover and remained in the fire-swept area with the many stricken, carrying them one by one to the edge of the escarpment and there lowering them on a rope-supported litter down the face of a cliff to friendly hands. Desmond Doss passed away on March 23, 2006, And his incredible story of heroism is chronicled in Mel Gibson's 2016 film, Hacksaw Ridge. And I tell you this story of Desmond Doss because Desmond Doss was a man who stuck to his convictions. He entered the military, but he stuck to his convictions of not bearing arms. He kept Sabbath on Saturday and maintained a meatless diet, and he prayed regularly while getting shoes thrown at him by his buddies. He faced all sorts of harassment from his company, but he stuck to his convictions regardless. He refused to take shelter, and he saved the lives of 75 wounded men in the midst of combat. Desmond Doss stuck to his convictions. And I tell you the story of Desmond Doss sticking to his convictions because today in our scriptures and in the first chapter of Daniel, we're going to meet four men who stick to their convictions. These four men, Daniel and his buddies, live faithfully in exile and forage a way forward as faithful exiles in this city of Babylon because they stick to their convictions. Our story begins at the very beginning of the Book of Babylon, and it says or the Book of Daniel, and it says this During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So Judah was this country where God's people lived, and their capital city was the capital city of Jerusalem. And things in Judah and God's and things with God's people had gotten so bad that God allowed this rising power at the time called Babylon to lay siege to their capital city of Jerusalem. And Babylon's king was Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar orders his troops to lay siege to this capital city of Jerusalem in Judah. And eventually, after a a year and a half long siege, the walls fall and the Babylonian troops invade. And here's what happened after the walls fall. It says, The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his own God. And so Nebuchadnezzar and the troops invade this city of Jerusalem, and they walk right into God's temple, and they pillage it, and they plunder it, and they take whatever's worth value or whatever valuable items they could find in there, and they bring them back to their city of Babylon, and then they lay the city of Jerusalem to waste, and they burn it down, and they raise the city. And now these Jews, these people of God that were living in the city of Jerusalem, face a journey to a city that is foreign and living, and they face a journey and living in a land that is not their home. They have to leave behind the ashes of their home of Jerusalem and make this 800-mile trek eastward to this foreign city of Babylon. And the people that went were hand-selected by the Babylonian king. They wanted... See, Babylon had a a policy where when they would conquer a nation... They would want the best and the brightest and the most promising of the people that they conquered. And then they would take those people and bring them back with them to Babylon so that they could inculcate those people into the Babylonian culture. And then those people could be contributors to the ways of Babylon and contribute to the Babylonian empire. And so here's the type of people that Nebuchadnezzar was looking for after they conquered the city of Jerusalem. It said the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal army and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. So they're looking for nobility. They're looking for young men. It says, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. So they are looking for the most promising, the strongest, the people that can make a contribution to their society of Babylon that they're trying to build. And so here's who is chosen. It says, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen all from the tribe of Judah. So Daniel and his three buddies are the ones who are chosen from the tribe of Judah. And they're young men. They're getting selected because they're strong. They're promising. They're smart. These guys are the guys you love to hate because they are the valedictorian of the class. You know, when, in the high school, I graduated from at Their graduation ceremony, what they'll do is they'll read the scholarship winners. Again, I, you know, my, those are classes of like 80. And so they'll read the scholarship winners. And inevitably, the valedictorian always stands up. And the list of scholarships goes on forever and ever. It's like, when is this going to end, right? Because the valedictorian just raked in the scholarships. And inevitably, they go off to some place prestigious like UW-Madison or something like that. So, <laughs> you know... But they're, they've made it. These guys, Daniel and his buddies, by all accounts, have made it to the peak of success that's offered in the area. They're getting into Babylonian Harvard. They're getting into Babylonian Cambridge. They're getting into Babylonian Oxford. Whatever the most prestigious university in the world that you can imagine, this is the university that they are getting into. They have made it. Because they are getting accepted into the educational system from the preeminent nation in the world at that time. This is the best education that the globe has to offer at their time. So they have made it, by all accounts, to the peak of success. And now, it's as they enter into this Babylonian training regimen, it's as they go off to Babylonian Harvard, that the blizzistence begins. And today, we're going to see three points of blizzistence that Daniel and his buddies undertook as they tried to live faithfully as exiles in this place that's not their home. And the first point of resistance on, on the part of Daniel and his three buddies is entering the academy itself. Daniel and his buddies are accepted into the king's academy, and they are becoming trainees who will serve the king, all right? So it says, it says uh, it, as these guys enter Babylon... They are entering this training regimen and they're going to be exposed to all sorts of thoughts and all sorts of ideas that are Babylonian. And they're also going to be exposed to all sorts of thoughts and ideas that are not only Babylonian, but are in direct contrast with God's word and who they know Yahweh to be. And so they are going to be exposed to the best of Babylonian thoughts. So that means learning things like the Babylonian gods and Babylonian theology And things that are directly contrary to God's word, like astrology and and divination and sorcery. So they're going to be exposed to all sorts of things that they know are directly contrary to what God wants and who God is. But yet they go anyway. Here's what a commentator, her name is Joyce Baldwin, says about these guys entering the King's Academy. says, to begin to study Babylonian literature was to enter a completely alien thought world. These young men from Jerusalem's court needed to be secure in their knowledge of Yahweh to be able to study this literature objectively without allowing it to undermine their faith because they're going to be exposed to all sorts of thoughts and ideas that are opposed to who Yahweh is and Yahweh's word. I feel like this is really poignant because we have a bunch of people in our midst who are graduating high school and we're about to send them off into the next phase of their life and many of them are going off to an academy or college. And so... Graduating high school students, high school students, and college students, this is for you, okay? Because when you enter the academy, when you go off into college and go into those classrooms, you are going to be told to open up your mind, which is a good thing. But you open up your mind on a hunt for truth. And you open up your mind looking for what is true. And you need to test all the ideas and all the things that you are taught against god's word on the hunt for truth okay so there did you know that currency has watermarks you know so when you hold up currency to the light this is a picture i took in my office i only carry fives because that's how cheap i am i roll of fives right so um (laughs) it's the highest bill i had in my wallet at the time sometimes 20s make it in there um (laughs) after morgan goes to the atm uh When you hold up currency to the light, it reveals watermarks. And you can see, As I, this was in my office, I held my $5 bill up to the light, and you can see the watermark of 5 there. You can't see that when you just look at it like this. And then you can see there's a seal that runs vertically, and it's like a black line, and in this case it says USA 5, USA 5, USA 5, over and over again, in that vertical line. And I bring this up because I say that when you go off to college, seniors that are graduating and college students, many ideas are going to be taught you and given you in that classroom. And you need to make a practice of taking that idea and you hold it up to the light of scripture to see if there's any truth in there or not. Every idea that you get, you hold up to the light of scripture, is there truth? Every idea you get, you hold up to the light of scripture, is there truth? And some of you might be saying, I'm going off to a Christian college. I went to Christian undergrad and a seminary and I held my bills up to the light and I still found bills that had no biblical truth there and I had to throw them away. So just because you go to a Christian college doesn't mean that you're off the hook for holding these ideas up to biblical truth. Sometimes you're going to hold up a bill and you're going to see, okay, there's some biblical truth here, but there's no biblical truth here. So I'm going to rip that bill in half and keep the biblical truth part. I'm going to throw away the other part. All right. But you're constantly, need to decide what does the Bible say is true and what does the Bible say is false. That is the practice you make. And so Daniel and his buddies are facing the same prospect as they head off to the Babylonian academy that they are going to be exposed to all sorts of ideas and all sorts of thought that's opposed to God's word and Yahweh himself, God himself. So why in the world would these guys enter the academy? Why would they enter the academy if they're going to be exposed to all sorts of things that are opposed to who God is and opposed to what God says? Here's where the blessing comes in. Because I think, uh, ultimately, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. Ultimately, we don't know. But there's conjecture that this would have placed Daniel and his buddies in a position of influence in the culture. And the very fact of going into the Babylonian academy, they would have been required to learn Babylonian culture and what Babylonians thought. And so they are not only learning the culture, but they're being placed in spheres and positions of influence amongst the king. They're servants of the king. So you have the king's ear. You have the nobility's ear because your life is in the palace. And so you are amongst people of influence. When missionaries go into a foreign culture, the first thing they do is not teach the Bible. They don't teach the Bible. That's the first thing they don't do. Because first, they have to learn who the people are and they have to learn the culture so that they can teach the Bible. The first thing missionaries have to do is learn the culture and learn the people so that they know how can I communicate God's word to these people. Now, you guys are very much like me, but when I came, I had to learn you. I had to, I'm still learning your culture. I'm learning what are the values down here? What are the ways that you think? Who are you all? Right? I'm still learning that, and I'll always be learning that, but that was my first order of business. Is to learn. That's why I took all those selfies with all of you, because I wanted to learn you, and I'm still learning you to this day. So Daniel and his buddies are being placed in a position of learning the culture and a position of influence. And I think that's why they, this is just my guess, that's why they accepted entering the academy. That was their way of blessing the culture because they realized if I enter this academy, I'm going to learn this culture and I can be an influence for Yahweh in this culture. Second point of blazistence is receiving new names. So Daniel and his buddies enter the king's academy and now as part of entering that academy, now they're receiving new names. Here's what the Bible says. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. And so these guys are being given new Babylonian names as part of going into the king's academy. And this is not without theological significance. Because their Hebrew names, their Jewish names, made a statement about who Yahweh is and who their God is. Because Daniel means my judge is Yahweh. My judge is capital G, God. And Hananiah means the Lord, capital L, is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is, meaning like nobody's like God, right? He's holy other. He's awesome. Nobody's like God. And then Azariah is, the Lord has helped. So every single one of their names makes a theological statement about who Yahweh is. Their Jewish names make a theological statement about who their God is. And so by going into the Babylonian academy and receiving Babylonian names and having their Hebrew name change, that is making a theological statement. It's not it's more than just let's give you a Babylonian name so that we can pronounce it better, right? Like it's not these Babylonians who are like, ah, we don't know how to say these Hebrew names, so let's just give them a Babylonian name. There is a theological statement going on when they receive new names. For instance, Daniel is becoming Belchazzar. And Daniel means Daniel's Hebrew name means my judge is Yahweh. But Belchazzar means may a god, lowercase g, protect his life. And so Daniel is going from my judge is Yahweh to may bell protect my life. You see this theological difference that a Babylonian God is now protecting his life. That's what his name, whose new Babylonian name means. So you say to yourself, why, if this is making a theological statement, why would these guys accept the renaming? We don't know. (laughs) Isn't that so unsatisfying? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says they receive these new names. Bible doesn't tell us third point of resistance: eating the food. Now, here is where Daniel and his buddies are going to draw a hard line. So far, they've undergone the entrance into the king's academy. They've undergone a renaming to a Babylonian name. And now we get to eating the food, and they're going to draw a hard line. Here's what the Bible says. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods." And so Daniel draws the line, and he says to the chief of staff, I don't want to eat this meat that's provided to me by the king. And his buddies follow. And right away, the chief of staff does not want to go along with this plan because he says, I'm responsible for your well-being and that you become a strong young man who's ready to serve the king. And so I don't want to allow you to not eat this because you got to be strong. And Daniel says, well, how about this? Why don't we take 10 days? And my buddies and I are going to eat uh, vegetarian only. We're going to forego the meat. We're going to eat our own diet. And then after 10 days, you test us and see if we're any more malnourished than all these other trainees that are in this academy. And incredibly, the chief of staff agrees to this plan. And amazingly, you might say against all odds, because these guys are eating meat and these guys are only eating vegetables, they end up, at the end of 10 days, they end up stronger and more healthy than all the other trainees who were eating meat. So God honors that choice. Daniel and his buddies draw the hard line. They say, no, we're not going to eat this meat. So now the question, why? So far we've got academy, fine. Knowing that we're going to resist the Babylonian thought and the things that are opposed to the word of God, but we're going to bless Babylon by entering their academy. We're going to resist them by resisting the things that are opposed. But okay, academy's okay. We're going to receive these new names, despite the fact that they make a theological statement, that's fine. But now we get to eating meat and it's like, no. Why? <laughs> why would you say, Academy, yes. Names, yes. Food, no. Again, we ultimately don't know. The Bible tells us. doesn't tell us. Very unsatisfying. But there are guesses. If you read the commentaries, there's all sorts of hypothesizing why this might be. And here, I think, is the best explanation. All right? Again, Bible doesn't tell us. This is all conjecture. But I think it fits well. You know how there's all these scandalous stories out there of college students Um, college athlete prospects receiving all these gifts under the table to try to woo them into college programs. You know, you hear about these athletes receiving cars behind the back and all that sort of stuff, like, hey, you know, come to our program. Here's a car. Come to our program. Here's, uh, We'll take care of your family, you know, and all of a sudden the family starts getting all these checks in the mail and things like that. Because those gifts to those college students are a wooing of loyalty. They come with strings of loyalty attached, like, hey, here's a car. Come to our program now. And in the same way, it's guessed that these gifts that these trainees in the academy received from the king came with strings of loyalty attached. That it was like, you can have my food, and I want you to have the best, because this is the king's diet. This would have been the best food that they would have offered in the globe at that time. You're eating the diet of the king of the preeminent preeminent nation on the globe. But those gifts at the same time came with strings of loyalty. Like, you're going to serve me, and you're also going to be loyal to me. And so Daniel and his buddies draw the hard line at the food because they are making a theological statement that they are saying, yes, king, I will serve you, but I am not loyal to you. I am loyal to Yahweh. Yes, king, I will bless you and I will serve you, but I resist loyalty to you because I am loyal to Yahweh. That's what people guess. Why they said no, because they did not want to accept the strings of loyalty that came attached to those gifts that they would have potentially received. Yes, King, I will serve you and I will bless you as a servant of you and I will serve you well and I will train hard and I will be a a blessing to you, but I am not loyal to you because I am loyal to my God, Yahweh. That's what they are saying. And it makes perfect sense with the response of the chief of staff. Because he says, when Daniel says, no, I'm not eating that meat, the chief of staff says, I am afraid of the Lord, my king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. The chief of staff is thinking, if you do not accept this gift with strings of loyalty, and then it turns out that you're malnourished, Not only will I be viewed as not doing my job, but the king will say to me, why did you allow those trainees to reject me? Why did you allow those trainees to make a stance of treason by not eating my food? Makes perfect sense out of the response of the chief of staff. Why did they resist the food? Ultimately, we don't know. But a pretty good guess is that it was a statement of loyalty to Yahweh and not to Nebuchadnezzar. And I show you all this because in accepting the academy and filtering out the messages and deciding what is biblical and what's not biblical and by accepting and renaming, but drawing a hard line at the food, you see this dance that these guys are doing between blessing and resisting. How can I bless this culture? But at the same time, where do I need to resist? What can I accept in this culture? But where do I need to draw the line and say, no, what's godly in this culture? And what can I, how can I serve this culture? But at the same time, how can I not compromise my service to the King God Yahweh? You see this dance that they're doing and it's very frustrating that we don't get a prescription because if God had given us the reasons why these guys did what they did, that would be a prescription and we could say, okay, good. Now we can just follow the prescription and that's how we blizzist, but he doesn't give us the prescription. He just shows us what they did. And I think that's God's way of saying to us, I'm not giving you a prescription. You need to forge your way forward moment by moment, hour by hour, every day deciding where do I bless and where do I resist? That's our job Folks, as exiles, is trying to figure out as we live this life in this country that's not our home, is how do I bless but at the same time, how do I resist moment by moment? Desmond Doss was a man who stuck to his convictions and you see how he did that dance of resistance How he blessed his country because he believed so strongly in freedom so he signed up to be part of the military to serve that agenda of freedom. But at the same time, he resisted by not bearing arms. And in the same way, Daniel and his buddies Blizzisted. They entered the academy rejecting all sorts of unbiblical thought. They accepted new names, but they drew the hard line at the food. This is the dance of Blizistance. Now, I'm a little nervous about telling you all this, but don't be offended. This is just me trying to figure out what the dance of resistance looks like in my life, all right? So if you're offended, just know that this is me just trying to figure out what it looks like to try to live in a culture where I'm supposed to love people but be in a culture where there's a whole culture that's setting up an agenda that's not biblical and that I disagree with, all right? So I'll preface this story by saying that. So on Friday, Morgan and the kids and I went to Ikea because Morgan has, uh, uh, in her... She's part of the club or whatever. And so her birthday's coming up at the end of the month. So Ikea sent her $15, no strings attached, right? No minimum purchase, $15 at Ikea. So of course we got to go take advantage of this, right? This is like how you have fun. Um, so we're walking up to Ikea on Drexel Avenue and um, and I'm hearing over the, you know, the message as you're walking in like, welcome to Ikea. And then they, and then they mention um, because it's June, you know, a portion of our proceeds, are going to um, pride and LGBT rights, and I'm right away now. I'm going, Ugh, you know, like that's frustrating, just hearing that. So I'm frustrated that I'm hearing that a portion is going to something that is unbiblical. And I walk in, and over here is the um, play area. For kids. And Bryn's never been in the play area yet. And she's kind of eyeing up the play area. We're like, you want to go in there? And she's like, yeah, I might. So we go over and, and there's a, a, a measuring stick and you have to, the two requirements to be in the play area, play area are, you have to be within a certain range of height and you have to be potty trained. So check, check, obviously, right? So, um, <laughs> So we're checking Bryn in, and this wonderful woman comes up and she's welcoming and she's instilling all sorts of confidence in you that like, they'll take good care of your children. And I'm looking in and I'm seeing it's clean and you know, there's no fires or drug usage. So I'm like, this is probably <laughs> really safe. So, you know, she's instilling confidence. And then I look at, I look at her lanyard that's holding her name tag. And here she has a pin, uh, a rainbow pin. And again, I'm just so frustrated when I see that and, and, and In this moment, I'm welling up with a lot of resistance. Resistance is no problem for me in this minute. All right. Like no problem. Right. And I'm wanting the the emotionally satisfying thing for me in that moment would have been to ask this woman, are you required to wear that pin or not? Because I'm really hoping that the answer is no, it's optional. Right. That's what I'm really hoping. So I'm, I'm formulating the question in my mind and I'm starting to picture like asking her. And then if she says yes, what would be my response? And, Again, resistance in this moment is no problem, right? So this woman is happily accepting my child and, accept it and and instilling all sorts of confidence in me that she will take good care of my kid. And then it hit me in that moment. And I'm like, were I to ask this woman what I want to ask her, I would be playing into a preconceived narrative about Christians that our culture has as hateful, angry bigots um, who are closed-minded and flat-out just jerks. Um, and it also occurred to me in that moment, Bill, you're not mad at this woman. You are frustrated at a culture that feels the need to virtue signal or line up and pay homage to this lowercase g god. You're not mad at this woman. In fact, Bill, you are called to love this woman, and this woman is happily accepting your daughter into her care. And were you to ask that question, you would just you would do you know tremendous harm to what we're trying to do here. So I smiled and I said, thank you for taking care of my child. Drop off and we leave. And of course, the resistance is still going inside of me, right? But I tell you that story not to say that this is some sort of prescription or not to say that like what I did in that moment was super virtuous. But I tell you the story to see this is me wrestling with the dance of blizzistence. How do I resist what I know is unbiblical and ungodly? And at the same time, how do I bless the culture that I'm living in? And I decided in that moment that I need to bless by simply saying, thank you for caring for my child. That is what I'm wrestling with as an exile, along with all of you. And that's what our calling is as exiles, is to blestist. We bless and we resist. Let's pray.